So when we take up the monastic training, whether as bhikkhu, samanera or anagarika, we're aiming to deepen our understanding of the teachings, the words of the Buddha. Sometimes they call it an act of devotion. We have recognition of the, the wisdom, the purity, the compassion of the Buddha, the depth of wisdom in his teachings brings up a sense of commitment, devotion to that and wishing to follow his example If we are following his example, then we have to learn how to investigate truth. The Dhamma is the truth. And the purpose of a Buddha arising in the world is to explain, expose the Dhamma, the truth, for the benefit of others. Uh, following in his footsteps, we're devoted to the truth, to learning, practicing, to realize truth. So our practice is very much based around investigation and looking and learning, but using the form, the structure of monastic training to support that doesn't really have any other end, even though we might misunderstand the purpose of the Vinaya, keeping rules, the form, the etiquette, and so on. It's all aimed to help support our deepening of understanding of truth and the investigation of truth. When we're born into the world, the Buddha pointed out that we straight away take up misperceptions, misunderstandings of truth. The mind grasps the body as a self, as mine, myself, take, takes ownership of the body from day one, even as a baby when we can't articulate it, we're already interpreting our experience from the viewpoint of a self, and this viewpoint is coming from ignorance, from misunderstanding, leading on to craving and attachment. <coughs> but as we grow up, we're constantly identifying with this body and our feelings and the mind and the, our thoughts and perceptions as self. And the core, the heart of the Buddhist teachings is to say, well, look at this. This is a delusion. This is 
the cause of all our suffering that we're taking something which is not self as self. And the Buddha didn't just say, believe what I say and take it on faith that the five aggregates are not self, this body, this mind is not self. He said it's, it's a way of reflecting and investigating. We have to question our own assumptions, our own perceptions, even though we've held them for a long, long time. So the monastic training is helping us in that quest for truth. We have the opportunity to look more deeply into our own experience and ask questions. And come to some understanding, insight into the true nature of body and mind, phenomena, the world. All of this practice, it's about training the heart and the mind in clarity, uh, understanding, wisdom, investigation. And all the parts of the practice fit together and support each other. So the, the Eightfold Noble Path, all the different factors support each other. We can't avoid or miss out one. So the Buddhist teachings is not just a philosophy to be believed in or an intellectual, intellectually uh, convenient explanation of life and the world. It's actually a, a path of practice, a way of practice that we obviously have to follow and test And all the different factors support support the investigation of truth and the arising of insight. So this is say when we enter the monastery, whatever level of our training, we begin just taking precepts, patimoka or samanera sikha or eight precepts of anagarika. It's with the end in sight is to put the mind in a better position to understand and see truth. But we have to accept that the beginning place of our practice is not necessarily that we have clarity and wisdom yet. We have some wisdom, but it's not yet perfected or fully penetrated reality. So we have to build on what we've got. And the use of precepts in the beginning of our training is very useful, it's skillful way to direct our mental energy towards this practice by putting some boundaries on our behavior, particularly the more extreme or harmful behavior that we might have inherited or be tended, tempted to fall into because of the presence of ignorance and attachment in the mind. So we undertake precepts 
there's training rules, guidelines to for our behavior just to develop a sense of composure and harmlessness in the way we live and to promote harmony. Whether we're say on Tudong on our own or a hermit in a cave or living in a monastery with a number of other monastics, you know, much of the Vinaya training and the rules are not only helping to quieten our mind down, but also to promote harmony with others. Harmony with other monastics, harmony with the laity who support us. Which is essential if we're going to develop enough <coughs> steadiness of mind to develop samadhi and insight. You know, it's essential that we have to compose our external behavior first. So we have to learn to use precepts skillfully, use uh, vinaya skillfully, and understand why and that helps. Why we use the vinaya, why we hold to the vinaya. In the end, it's all training this one heart. allowing it to investigate the Dhamma deep, more deeply. But the heart, the mind, is related to speech, to actions, and to the world externally. So, sila, the practice of morality, ethics, it helps us to sort that part of, very vital, very important part of our life out, so that we're not creating unnecessary suffering for ourselves or others through our actions or speech. So it's important to use the precepts, you know, to review them. We review them daily. Fortnightly we have the Patimoka recitation. We use them in this way to bring up clarity about the qualities of our intention, our volition, mental volition, which lies behind speech and action. Once we use precepts on a daily basis, then it gives us clear boundaries to behavior, what, what we should and shouldn't do, what we agree with ourselves to, to do or not to do. So we refrain from uh, killing or harming other beings, refrain from stealing, taking what is not given and so on. We make our own agreement with ourselves to follow these rules. And the result is that you know, even though we might still have negative mental states arise that are prompting us to transgress the precepts, we have uh, we've made our own decisions. So we say, "Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to harm others. I'm not going to exploit or manipulate others. Or not going to pursue sensual indulgence in different ways, and so on." We've made that decision. So then, the precepts and the patimoka they help us to become aware of our own intentions more clearly and to develop a sense of personal integrity, self-confidence based on a good standard of practice, 
self-respect and we gain the respect of others. All of this leads to a sense of well-being and steadiness of mind that supports the deepening of our development of mindfulness and insight. And our whole practice is based around the, the sort of principle that in order to free ourselves from suffering, first of all we have to experience some inner peace if we're really to uproot the causes of suffering, uproot ignorance, craving, attachment, we have to experience some peace in order to do that so that you can have some kind of comparison in your mind. There's the peace of living a virtuous lifestyle, following the precepts, <coughs> living in harmony with others. There's the peace of meditation, practicing mindfulness in different postures through our day, through different activities. The development of samadhi brings some inner peace, inner happiness, inner well-being, which is, it may take time, it may grow slowly, but it becomes clear to us that there is this inner peace, inner happiness. And then that helps to expose the opposite, the suffering, the confusion of not keeping the precepts, not practicing mindfulness, not understanding the way things are, the true nature of phenomena as anicca, dukkha, anatta. The more inner peace we develop through our practice and the more that shows us which direction to head, the choices we have to make and helps us to compare different experiences we have in our life, what's peaceful, what's not. So it shows us the path, we, we start to learn the path through our own experience rather than just from reading or hearing it. We learn what is actually a peaceful mind and what's conducive to a peaceful mind, what supports it. Doesn't mean to say we'll never experience suffering in our practice, of course we will. But once you have some reference points, and once you're learning how to keep precepts and follow them and use them as useful supports, once you learn how to practice mindfulness, meditate, then you've got a way of dealing with dukkha, reflecting on dukkha, understanding dukkha better. And probably all of us can look back to the time before we were in the monastery when there probably be times when dukkha was very overwhelming in our life, whether it's just the pain of illness and injury or the mental suffering of you know, anguish and fear and disappointments and so on. And when dukkha comes up like that, when we haven't developed the path, then we tend to just identify with it, suffer with it and don't see any way out, any way around it. Once we're developing this path, we come into the monastery, start training in the monastic form, the rules, the regulations, the precepts. We're developing more mindfulness, then you start to have some clarity and you can see, well, there is dukkha arising, and you, but you can also see there's also the opposite, there is peace. We experience more peace, more happiness through the practice. 
And then we can start to unravel well, what causes the dukkha, start to see the causes, the conditions that lead to dukkha arising in the mind. Because we can also see what is not dukkha, what is peaceful, what is happy for the mind. All of this begins just taking on the form, taking on the monastic form, the training, and having to devote ourselves to it, give up to it. So trust that it's uh, been used and developed for thousands of years. So it's quite likely that it's a good system, even if we haven't practiced with it before. And then we have to take it on, take it on, practice with it and see for ourselves. So it's no longer just taking it on trust, on faith, but you actually come to appreciate the value of training and the system of training, both the Vinaya and then the Dhamma, the methods of meditation and the reflections we're developing. A lot of the training in the beginning is just learning to set aside you know, a lot of our old habits, you know, our worldly habits, our ego, our attachments in different ways that we've brought with us into the monastery, which we may have an inkling that they're a cause of suffering, but maybe not fully understand that. But a lot of the practice is helping us to, to shed some of the burden of our previous attachments. So we need a certain amount of humility as we come into the monastery. You know, we are monastics, dependent on alms. We don't have an income. We don't have a lot of rights and privileges and so on. So we have to take time to adjust to that. If we can see the value of the training, then it's not necessarily such a difficult thing. We just learn not to go in the old way that we used to always want to get things the way we want, have our own space, our own independence, and our own power over our lives. As we're always trying to control things, because we've probably already seen that doesn't work. It tends to lead to a lot of suffering and stress anyway. And now we're in the monastery, we tend to have to practice a lot of humility, giving up to the routines, the forms, the way we dress, the way we act, giving up to the teacher, giving up to the structure of the monastery and so on. Hopefully you can appreciate that is a valuable tool again for letting go of attachments, conceit, ego, Stubbornness, arrogance, you know, various kilesas that may have been hiding in our character start to get exposed. So we have to work a bit with it, be patient. If we develop that sense of humility, it's a bit easier. And it's not impossible, is it? Many people have done this over the years. It's not that everybody starts to practice sort of very young and unimportant in life as it were. Many people come into the monastery, they've done many things before they become monks. They bring with them their past, but they're still able to set it aside and give up to the Vinaya and to the way of training. Like in the time of the Buddha, many of the bhikkhus were 
relatives of the Buddha from other important families, ruling families from India in that, that time inspired to follow the Buddha's example. They had to set aside all their attachment to caste, power, privilege. Venerable Pali, who was the foremost in the Vinaya, the Buddha, he was only a humble barber, but the Buddha had him ordained before Ananda and many of his relatives because they were all noblemen just to teach them something about letting go of their attachment to their previous status. They can all be deferential to Upali, even though he was a humble barber before. In terms of Dhamma, though, he was very wise and became the most learned bhikkhu in the Vinaya. Or in the modern era, in the time of Ajahn Man, many of his disciples weren't just young men who hadn't done much in the world, and some of them were older people who had had families, jobs, some of them even quite wealthy and successful. As soon as they gave up out of faith in him and in the way of training, came into the robes, they had to drop all that. Eat in a bowl, eat the alms food, whatever came their way, live very simply in a life of a Tudong monk, practicing you know, respect for senior monks, Acharya Wata, and dedicating themselves now to the practice. But they had that clarity, they understood why they were doing it and what they were doing it for, giving up the worldly aims and aiming now for Nibbana. Like Lumpur Prom, I think he was about 50 when he ordained. Being a wealthy businessman in his, in his region, set it all aside and immediately won the respect of the Sangha, not because he was, just because he was older, he was still just a one Vasa monk when he came into the monastery, or even a no Vasa monk when he started, but because he was so dedicated to the Dhamma Vinaya, dedicated to keeping all the rules, dedicated to wakefulness, practicing a lot of sitting and walking, sleeping little, eating little, quickly won over the respect of the whole Sangha, even though he was one of the most junior members, because of his dedication to the practice. Even in this modern era, sometimes you see examples of this. There was the head of the Thai army who went to ordain with Lumpur Tui. He's the head of the whole army, so he had many, many people under him assistants, junior officers and so on, who were all wanting to serve him and help him. So when he was first in the monastery, they were offering to wash his bowl for him. He, he said, no, I'm going to train as a forest monk. I wash my own bowl, just like anyone else. I look after my own requisites, clean my own kuti, eat in the bowl, eat the same food as the other monks. Even though he could have had a lot of privileges, he deliberately spurned that out of humility and respect for Dhamma Vinaya. When he left the monastery, he became Prime Minister of Thailand. So as someone who could easily have had a very comfortable life as a monk, but he knew that wouldn't, he wouldn't learn anything from that. He might as well just stay as a lay person. When we become a monk, we have to accept this time to devote ourselves to Dhamma Vinaya 
and set aside some of our old habits, worldly ambitions and so on. As long as we have enough to eat, we can get by. We have some medicines when we're sick. We've got a kuti, we've got robes. We don't need a lot more. We have to learn to be content with that, whether we're one rains or, or many rains. It doesn't change. We're still learning just to be content with the requisites, the lifestyle and so on. Because we're inspiring to higher things, inspiring to really understand the truth as the Buddha taught. Really see the see anatta, see the lack of self in these five khandhas. If you're going to do that, then you have to set aside your attachments and previous perceptions that boosted the sense of self, reinforced it. As I said, since we've been born, our basic assumption is that there's a me here. We own this body, this mind, we own our possessions, we own all kinds of rights and privileges and expectations in this world. Now we're setting that aside, we're looking more deeply and seeing the conditioned nature of our existence. Being this sense of self, the perception of self is actually false. Through investigating with developing mindfulness, through keeping the precepts, developing the meditation object, and then contemplating, and you start to pull apart the assumption of self in your experience. Our teachers, Ajahn Chah and our teachers always direct us to do this first with the body. You keep coming back to contemplate the body and see how incorrect it is to, to have a sense of ownership of this body. Because it really doesn't do what we want, doesn't follow our wishes. We don't want it to get old, get sick, get hungry. We don't want it to die, but it will. It's never comfortable. Every day we have to keep moving because we stay in one posture too long, it's painful. Every day we meditate, we're probably experiencing some pain, some discomfort in the body. But the problem is not the pain and the discomfort, it's the sense of ownership and identification with it. So we start there with our practice, our investigation of truth as we meditate and contemplate in the monastery. Just keep watching how we trick and delude ourselves, we take ownership of the body and then we suffer because the body is suffering. And birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha. This body is suffering, it's unstable. It doesn't stay the same, it doesn't stay just nice and healthy as we want it all the time. It doesn't stay comfortable as we want it all the time. Meditation and insight meditation exposes this, shows the mind that it is not in charge, it's not in control of this body. But we're having to teach ourselves that, really look, question this assumption over and over again till the mind starts to let go and not get so concerned about the body, not take it as such an important thing, not to suffer with it. There is suffering there with the body, but not to grasp at it as self. Obviously that's practice of repeated investigation, 
So much of our practice, you know, the, the wheel of the Dhamma keeps turning. It's because we keep practicing over and over again. We keep returning to the precepts, returning to mindfulness, returning to insight into the nature of phenomena as an each dukkha anatta. So it's like a wheel turning over and over again. We keep applying ourselves to the same techniques, the same reflections. But little by little, it starts to purify our view and our way of looking at things. So we're no longer caught into the old assumptions. You just keep questioning this body that we, the mind is inhabiting. And the inevitable result, you tend to get weary of the attachment. It's tiresome to keep attaching to something which is suffering. And the mind doesn't want to suffer, it wants to be peaceful, free and happy. But the only way to achieve that is to let go of what is suffering and what causes suffering. So we keep investigating little by little, looking at the body, contemplating it, changing this perception of it as a self, as me, mine, myself, belonging to me. We keep investigating Vetana. Again, where does self arise? Well, with Vetana, we attach to pleasure, attach to pain as self, as me, mine. Always looking for more pleasurable experiences, always trying to get rid of the unpleasant. So patience, the more patience we have, the more humility we have, just helps to expose that over and over again, doesn't it? That the movement of the mind seeking out more pleasure, trying to get rid of the pain and the displeasure, rather than just always following craving and attachment and never really learning, we have to stop sometimes. Establish mindfulness, be patient and just watch craving coming and going, coming and going. This is where the refinement of our sila helps. You know, we have simplicity of lifestyle, we have one main meal a day, we don't use money, we don't buy a lot of possessions, have a lot of possessions. We think about what we use, use it wisely, use it carefully and so on. This refinement of sila helps to expose this, this endless identification with pleasure and pain and the vetana. Because you see how it, if we don't have much sila, then you know, life is based around just following Vetana, identifying with it, following it, trying to get more pleasure all the time and avoid and minimize pain. But as a bhikkhu, we're learning to be more patient and more observant of what's going on, not always just giving in to craving. Doesn't mean to say we torture ourselves and you know, make ourselves ill or miserable or, or you know, to the point where we can't function. But we have enough resilience that we can not give in to every mood and every craving, every desire that pops into the mind, but we can stop and watch it. So we, sometimes we want something and we don't get it and we just watch the wanting rather than following. 
or sometimes we've got something that we don't want, but we just watch. It applies to everything, whether it's just something simple like you know, going bindabhat this morning, a lot of flies. It might be the tendency to want to just get rid of them, squash them. But then we have our precepts, practicing harmlessness, compassion. So you just learn to be patient with the annoying nature of flies. So you're directing your mind in a different way and letting go of the intention to harm the fly, get rid of it, physically harm it maybe. Something very simple like that. It's training both in precepts but also training in vipassana as well. You're watching the Anicca Dukkha Anatta of maybe the thought to want to get rid of the flies or be out of that situation. And just being patient and watching the mind, whatever reaction it is, rather than following the desire that arises, just see the desire as a state of mind arising, passing away, based on unpleasant feeling. You can see the cause for it, but you don't have to act on it and let it become a craving and attachment, but just let it fade away by itself. Even something as simple as flies bothering you can be a great learning experience it's part of the practice you can apply that to everything else you know there's many many situations in the monastery that we might not like we feel bored or we don't like another person or some part of the routine or something rather than just follow those moods all the time and indulge them but to establish some patience and mindfulness and just Observe them as states of mind arising, passing away. Bring the mind to a higher level, the level of satipatthana, seeing body as just body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, phenomena as phenomena, mind objects as mind objects. Not grasping at them with this sense of self, not identifying with them as, as self. This is how we train, you know, every level, whether it's on the level of precepts, basic mindfulness training or investigating the Dhamma, whether we're sitting meditation, walking meditation or involved in any other activity, any other time of day. You can always bring the mind back to pay attention to the present moment, whatever's arising, and contemplate it, anicca dukkha anatta. And little by little, this is a liberating force, freeing the mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. So it's important to see the whole of the training. Each part matters. Each part is important, whether it's just the beginning taking precepts, eight precepts, the meditations of learning to calm and concentrate the mind, you know, mindfulness of breathing, walking meditation, butto, contemplating the body and so on. They're important. The reflections on each dukkha anatta are all important. They're all part of one whole that leads to the training of the mind little by little, 
letting go of some of its false assumptions, false perceptions that cause so much suffering to us. You're learning to relax inwardly through the practice of samadhi, learning to understand things clearer by reflecting using these reflections the Buddha gave us, little by little bringing the mind in line with Dhamma. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.